This is They Create Worlds, episode 173, The Computer Price Wars, part 2. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We bring you to part two of the live stream and our continuing coverage of the computer price wars. We are your live correspondents as we have just seen how the setup has been painstakingly taken in order to have computers not just be for hobbyists, but for the regular user. We have all of these wonderful toys to play with. Wonderful, wonderful toys. But now, the FCC has lowered the standards of emissions. And along with all of these wonderful people who want to make all the computers, we have a tinderbox ready to explode out into a price war that will be so ruinous that not even IBM can recover. (laughs) Something like that. Certainly, as we uh, reach 1980 in part two of our three-part look at this kind of home computer situation, home computer price wars, we find ourselves at a time where the market is primed for some kind of consumer market. We don't know exactly what that is yet. And at the very beginning, it's not necessarily true that this is going to be a home computer market, as opposed to a market for computers in the home which, as we discussed in the last episode, is actually two very different things, despite the fact that they sound like it's the same thing. In fact, at the start of this period, all attention is really on the small business market and the computer-in-the-home-for-business market. Everything is really starting to coalesce around the Apple II. You know, we talked last episode that there is a myth about the Apple II dominance of early personal computing, this whole idea that the Apple II was launched and that heralded the computers that arrived and then everyone bought Apple IIs and then they dominated the whole market until IBM came in and started to freeze them out or whatever. However, that myth ends. That's definitely overblown. However, it is true that at this period of time, The Apple model of computing is definitely on the rise, and it's not just necessarily that the Apple II itself is reaching new heights, and the Apple II is starting to heat up a little bit. It's still not reached the heights of some of its early competitors like the TRS-80, but it is starting to pick up with that VisiCalc as the catalyst. But it's also alerted the entire rest of the industry that this seems to be the direction computing is going. So while you do have Atari and Texas Instruments, starting to lay the groundwork for what we will come to call the home computer industry with their computers, as we discussed last time. You really have the majority of the market moving in a different direction and trying to bring in the business user now that VisiCalc has proven, oh, look, there is something you can do with a microcomputer that you really can't do with anything else in the computing space. So this is why Apple itself releases the Apple III which is a more expensive computer specifically targeted at businesses. This is why Tandy releases the TRS Model 2, 
which is not a sequel to the TRS Model 1, as this numbering would imply. It's part of the same family, but it is a more expensive computer that is targeted at business users. This is why Commodore is hyper-focused on creating what they call an Apple killer. At this point, we really need to kind of focus in on Commodore a little more and what they are doing. We discussed how Commodore released the PET computer in 1977. It was part of that so-called trinity. Well, Commodore did not at that time have great U.S. distribution at all. They were in pretty rough shape after all of the trouble that they had in the calculator business. However, they had a great presence in Europe. In Europe, they had a different set of marketers that weren't really directly under Jack Trammell's control. Now, Jack Trammell did some amazing things at the American branch as well. I mean, it's not like he was a complete screw-up or anything far from it. But he was very hands-on, he was very micromanagey, and he didn't give a lot of room for his direct reports, his presidents and his marketing people, to do their jobs, <laughs> quite frankly which led to a lot of tension and constant turnover of executives and an inability to really create a standard Commodore image and a standard Commodore brand in the U.S. The company was actually set up under a holding company structure, where you had Commodore International, which was headquartered in the Bahamas, but only for tax purposes. There was like a two-person Commodore International Office in the Bahamas because you were required to have somebody there. It was a dirty job, but somebody had to go be a front man and live in the Bahamas. It's such a challenge to live in the Bahamas and having to live off the corporate paycheck there. Exactly. It's not like it was really a Bahamanian company. That was entirely for tax purposes. And then you had the individual branches of it. You know, the main one was Commodore in the U.S., where Jack Trammell was in charge. And technically, Jack Trammell was in charge of everything. I mean, the general managers of the other branches also reported to him. But then all these other places were also separate subsidiaries. There was a Commodore Europe in Switzerland, a Commodore UK in Britain, a Commodore Germany, and wouldn't you know it, Germany. They had these subsidiary offices, also a Commodore Japan, because they actually had a big presence in Japan, because Jack had been one of the real pioneers in having consumer electronics manufactured over there. So even back in the calculator days, he was establishing relationships with Japanese companies. In Europe, because they had some marketers as general managers that were both very savvy and being out from under Jack's thumb, were able to guide their organizations and have some continuity and actually build some brand, they were a very, very well-regarded company there. The Commodore Pet was actually a very, very well-regarded business computer, especially after VisiCalc came out, because even though VisiCalc was original for, originally for Apple, of course, it did get on other systems. The thing is, the Pet was actually better. It was better suited than the Apple II for being a business machine. It wasn't better suited than the Apple II for everything, far from it. But because it had an 80-column display, 80 columns of text and not a 40-column display, it was better suited to spreadsheets and better suited to business operations. Just to kind of briefly, because it is a tangent, which we love on They Create Worlds, explain what we're talking about here is we're, we're talking about screen real estate. We're talking about resolution. 40 columns means that you can have 40 columns of text on the screen at once. 80 means you can have 80, the higher resolution computer. There were add-ons. The Apple II, of course, was incredibly extensible. There were add-on boards that added an 80-column display to the Apple II, but if you're a business 
not a hobbyist. You're not going to be like, well, okay, I'll buy this computer and then I'll buy this add-on board and then I'll buy this add-on board. It's like, no, you want something that's ready to go out of the box. The Commodore PET with a native 80-column display was actually a brilliant computer to use with VisiCalc. In a slightly different world, maybe VisiCalc comes out on the Commodore PET first, and the Apple II never gets that grip on the market. It's actually interesting. The only reason it was even created on the Apple II instead of the PET is because when the creator went in and uh, was pitching it to personal software and needed a computer to work on it with, all the Commodores were in use. So they're like, we got this Apple II no one's using. Use that. And so got put on there. That's the legend. It may not be true. It is one of these apocryphal things. But even if it's not true, it just kind of goes to show that the PET was seen as a business computer and the Apple II was seen as a hobbyist thing. It really wasn't for this, but VisiCalc changed that. Commodore was dominating the business market in Europe, particularly in Germany and the United Kingdom, which were their two strongest markets, but really all over the place. The sense at Commodore is let's continue with this. Let's get the pet line extended and let's get an apple killer so that we can have some of the same success that we're having in the United Kingdom with the pet in Germany and Europe. And let's have some of that success in the United States as well. So they started work on a, a computer they called the Toy, T-O-I. The name was chosen first, similar to the Commodore PET. They did give meaning to it, but PET came before the ac- what the acronym was. The creator actually chose the name Toy because it sounded Japanese, and this was a period of time when the Japanese were making noise about it in the computer market. After they had that name, they gave it the name. They said it stood for The Other Intellect. Whatever. So yeah, I call it toy. I don't know how they pronounce it. I don't know if they pronounce it the French way as toi, but my guess is they didn't because they were all filthy Americans. But yes, the French would call that toi. Thank you, our resident French-Canadian in, uh, well, you're you're not French-Canadian, but French-Canadian adjacent individual in chat who knows their ways. So they were trying to create this apple killer while at the same time maybe extending the pet line. Unfortunately, it just was not going very well. The main problem is, unfortunately, MOS technology, while it had been kind of on the forefront with the 6502 processor, was really falling behind the market. They had had a lot of churn, a lot of turnover, some of it due to the office environment and the stress that they were always under, thanks to Jack Trammell, some of it because some of them got the entrepreneurial spirit and went off and started their own companies. Moss was really behind on chip design, and they had made some crucial mistakes as they were trying to come up with their latest technology. And one of those is they were still stuck in static RAM rather than dynamic RAM. So, Jeffrey, explain to the people a little bit about static RAM versus dynamic RAM. Static RAM and dynamic RAM have a very interesting history can get extremely complex, but at a very high level, static RAM or SRAM is very, very fast, but it's also very, very expensive. And it's really, really good at handling calculations and bringing stuff in, do something really quick, getting rid of it just as fast where speed really matters. The problem is it's extremely expensive to do that cost per megabyte or byte or whatever. So you usually see SRAM on things like CPUs. You might see it on certain parts of a video processing where that time really matters. Dynamic RAM, that's most of the RAM you see on computers. So that's where you're, when you say, I got a 32 
gigabyte machine, you have typically DVAM. And it's at a lower price. It's at a lower speed. Still fast, but compared to SRAM, lower. I'll probably find some good video to properly explain this in the show notes. So check that out. Absolutely. So for our purposes, the real uh, thing to focus in on here is that price problem. Because especially in these early days of computing, when all memory was still very expensive, static RAM was incredibly expensive and could not really be used in large quantities in anything that you wanted to consider like a computing product for the home. So as they were trying to work on new video chips for both an extension of the pet line and for this new Apple killer that they were calling the toy, they were running into the problem that they couldn't get enough functionality into the chips to be competitive because they couldn't work in DRAM and it just was becoming prohibitively expensive. Yes, it's great to have SRAM in a video processor for the reasons that we talked about, because it's it's much faster. But in this time frame, it wasn't practical to go complete SRAM. Basically, they were unable to come up with chips that were able to do much more than put 20-odd columns on the screen, and you couldn't have an Apple killer that had half the columns of an Apple. It just wasn't going to work. Now, at the same time, though, they were having some success experimenting with less powerful graphics processors that could output some pretty decent graphics, just couldn't do it with all the screen real estate. One of the engineers at the company, Al Charpentier, who was doing a lot of this chip work, was inspired by the VCS and basically by the lack of graphical capability of the VCS, where it drew the line one screen at a time and all of that to try to take a shot at doing a better graphical chip that could be paired with the 6502 to produce relatively cheap, relatively nice graphics, though at a not very high resolution. He incorporated some features of some of the other chips they were working on and ended up with a chip that he called the 6560, because it was considered to be kind of part of the same line of support chips for the 6502 microprocessor, but that was also more informally known as the Video Interface Chip, or VIC. Meanwhile, as all of these things are going on, Commodore in early 1980 is going to have a big meeting in Europe of all of the general managers in Britain, of all the general managers from all over the world. At this time, they're still looking at Apple killers. The European people really want to extend the pet because they feel like they have the the proper inroads into the business space and that they can keep pushing forward in there. Everything is kind of aligning on this idea of we need bigger and better computers, just as Apple is doing, just as Radio Shack is doing, Tandy is doing, just as IBM, of course, is about ready at this time to get into this higher level business space with the IBM PC. Then while they're in Britain, Jack sees something that he did not expect. A little computer called the ZX80, designed by a company owned by a gentleman by the name of Sir Clive Sinclair. I know we did an episode on them. Absolutely. We won't go into great detail about what's going on in Britain in this time period, because this is definitely a US-centric series of episodes that we're doing this time on these price wars. We have done episodes on Sinclair, we have done the ZX80 in other contexts and its successors, so we don't want to repeat ourselves too much. 
just as a high-level overview, basically at this time, computing in Britain was on a completely different track than computing in the United States. It was a market where there were more pressures on cost of living, but it was also a market where the government was throwing more support behind the idea of computing as something essential to the New Britain and something that needed to be encouraged in any way possible. You had a market at this point just beginning to develop. It would really get rolling in another couple of years with the the ZX Spectrum. But you have a market that's just beginning to get rolling that is focused more on really, really cheap computers. Computers that are appropriate purchases even for the British working class, even though it would it would still be a lot for them to, to save up for. It's, it's something that was theoretically in their reach, something that was for the children because the children needed to become computer literate. Margaret Thatcher said so. The BBC said so. Everybody says so. And then you have someone in Sir Clive Sinclair who is similar in some ways to Jack, but comes at it a little differently because Jack always wants to be competitive in the marketplace. Jack's thing is, this company over here is doing this. Let's also do that, but let's do it cheaper. But in his case, cheaper doesn't necessarily mean stripping away everything. Yeah, he might strip away some things. He might have something that in some ways is not as robust as his competitor. But what he really means is, we have lots of vertical integration. We have great manufacturing in Asia. And this is a period of time in the early 1980s when most companies did not. Offshore manufacturing by the middle of the 1980s is becoming a big thing. At the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s, it's really not yet. Jack's like, we have all this vertical integration. We can build all of these components in-house. We have these manufacturing operations in Japan where we can really reduce costs. Let's build something that does what the other guy does, but let's take advantage of this to make ours cheaper and maybe even in some ways better. But it's not about just doing as little as possible with as little as possible. Clive Sinclair, bless his heart, may he rest in peace, was always of the opinion that it's better to do something cheaper if you're going to do it at all. Not necessarily pay attention to the niceties of how good the product actually is. From an American perspective, it's a strange way of doing things. I'm saying that as an American. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying from an American perspective, it's a bit strange. I think in the cost-conscious British market, it makes a lot more sense because in that market, sometimes it was better to have something that was cheap and did something not very well than to not have anything at all. There was a large working class with lower standard of living than in the U.S. that you needed to cater to in order to be successful. So I'm not saying that his approach was necessarily the wrong approach. I'm just saying it was a very different approach from Jack. The ZX80, it had 1K of memory. One, the screen went blank when you typed on it because the computer had enough memory to type a character and it had enough memory to display a screen, but it did not have enough memory to do both. It's the kind of thing that the American market would have probably never put up with. Americans would have probably wanted something that cost $100 more and was more capable. Which is the better approach? I mean, it's not for me to say. I'm just saying that that's just a very different philosophy in these two markets on how to do a low-cost product. Jack didn't want something exactly like the ZX80 when he saw it. 
But when he saw it, it did open up his mind to a whole new possibility for computers because the ZX80, it sold well. These computers did well in the United Kingdom despite their limited technology. It was a market that I don't think Jack had ever seen before because consumer electronics were not products for the masses in the U.S. They were products for the classes. Even the cheapest products were expensive, and it was, it was really more of a middle-class kind of thing. Now, for a variety of reasons, even in this time period, I mean, even the, the American working class was kind of, of middle-class after union gains and all of that. That's going to start changing. That's kind of beyond our scope here. There was a more affluent audience. The market could tolerate more than that, but he saw that, wait, maybe there is a way to do something cheaper. The other side of this is, so what? Why would he care about that? The pet never did well in the U.S. due to a distribution problem and being overshadowed by the others, but it did well in Europe. An Apple killer would definitely do well in the United States because the Apple II is starting to do better and better. The margins are going to be higher on these more expensive computers. You can theoretically make more money on these computers. So why even bother with this low end of the market? Yeah, maybe you capture a larger market share, but you don't necessarily get higher profit margins out of it. The other side of this equation is that there is one thing that scared Jack Trammell more than anything in existence, and that was the Japanese. Now, in this time period, there was starting to be a growing concern in the U.S. about the Japanese across the board. I mean, it was a concern for the Japanese that caused Texas Instruments to pierce the usual divide between supplier and consumer electronics company and create their own calculators, not just sell their chips to other companies. There was a rising concern, you know, that the Japanese had been coming for American industry one by one. Steelworking was one of the first, automobiles, consumer electronics. The Japanese were coming. And, you know, there were there were some reasons for that. I'm not a an economic historian, so I'm sure I'm oversimplifying and, and misstating some, but it was that Japanese ability to innovate, which they had, and be efficient and take something that had been invented someplace else and learn the heck out of it and refine it and improve it. And then there was also the relatively closed economy where compared to the US, where it was relatively easy for the Japanese to export to the United States and relatively hard for the US to export to Japan which meant that the balance was kind of off here and American products couldn't force the Japanese out of their own markets, but the Japanese could definitely force the Americans out of their own markets. This concern had been coming. However, Jack was one of the first guys that was really doing all of his manufacturing, not all of it, but a lot of his manufacturing in Japan. So he had a front row view for what was going on. He was deep in Japan. He was deep in Hong Kong. He was deep in these Asian markets where this stuff was happening. So he saw what was coming down the pike, and he was very scared of it. He was scared that the Japanese were going to come in with computers priced lower than comparable American computers and run American companies right out of the business. I'm just telling the history as it happened. I'm not here to spread xenophobia. I'm not here to take a position on USA, USA, or, you know, go Japan, crush them. I'm merely stating the facts here. This was the reality that Jack found himself in. He was always scared of the Japanese. And now it looked like he had a way forward to forestall the Japanese. I think it's on day two, like they had day one, and then, you know, he's out exploring and he learns about the ZX-80. I mean, part of this is lore. It's lore told by people that were actually there. They may be embellishing because it's a good story, but either way, you know, and then he comes in the next day 
And everyone, all everyone wants to talk about is pet extensions and toys and all of this. And he's like, no, the Japanese are coming. We will become the Japanese. Basically, he wanted a low, low cost computer that could take that lower end of the market, be kind of a games machine, similar to how the ZX81 was kind of a learning computer and a games machine rather than a serious piece of kit, seize that lower end of the market and forestall the Japanese from taking it instead. And it just so happened that people at Moss Technology were kind of fooling around. They were fooling around with the VIC chip. They were fooling around with what they could do. And so the people at Moss basically said, uh, yeah, we got something we're working on that can kind of be that. And at this point, it wasn't what became the, the VIC-20 wasn't really defined at that point. They had been roughly kind of looking at some things, but they didn't have anything serious yet. But Jack's never one, been one to be like, okay, well, you say you can do this. Well, uh, you know, let's do a study and then let's get an engineering committee together and then let's put together a prototype and, and then refine it. And it's like, no, it's like, okay, you say you have something. CES is in a couple of months. Go do it. Go build it. We'll have it at CES. That's Jack. There ended up then at that point being a little bit of a power struggle within Commodore Engineering because at this time, Commodore was actually diffusely located. Moss Technology was in Pennsylvania. Commodore headquarters was actually still in Silicon Valley. And then there was a separate engineering facility, Moore Park, that was also in, in California, in Silicon Valley. So at this point, there was some back and forth because Chuck Peddle and his engineers in California just didn't believe in this at all. But now that this was going to be the thing, they were like, well, we can do something better than they can. We're actual computer engineers. They're just chip guys who think they know what they're doing with computers. Both teams started putting together competing systems, and it was all very ugly. And Chuck Peddle ends up leaving the company through part of this because of infighting and clashing with Jack and all of that. And not long after this, you know, Moore Park is closed down and everyone's moved into the main California office. And then not long after that, the California office is closed down and the whole company moves to Pennsylvania where Moss Technology is. There's a whole lot of drama there. It's not something we'll cover in detail here. That would be more suited to a specific Commodore episode. Long story short on all that is they end up with this computer, the VIC-20. Ooh. Which only has a 22-column display. So it's not suitable to go compete against Apple or to compete against a small business machine. This is actually something that would do a very good job of competing on the low end with the Atari 400 and with video game systems. Because it's going to have decent color capability and decent sprite capability. Its RAM is a little weird. has 5K of RAM. You can expand it. But it comes with 5K. And the reason why it's such a weird number is they had a bunch of leftover 1K RAM chips from back in the day when you still did 1K RAM chips. Jack was pretty insistent that they use up some of those 1K chips because they're just sitting around not doing anyone any good. So it has 5K, which is strange, but you can expand it. It takes cartridges, so it's easy plug and play. You can use some of that ROM space to make up for some of your lack of RAM. He thinks this is something that can actually keep the Japanese out. And in fact, they make the decision to release it in Japan first, where it goes by the designation VIC-1001 rather than VIC-20. That was a deliberate move. They release it in Japan in 1980 because they wanted to show the Japanese, look at what we've got. We've got a cheap computer. It's a $300 computer, which at that time, 
is fantastic. I mean, that's fantastic for what it's got. I mean, it's not as powerful as, as an Atari 800 or an Apple II, but it also costs a fraction of the price. I mean, at this period of time, Atari actually had to raise the prices. They launched the 400 and the 800 at $549.99 and $999.99. But then in 1980, they actually had to raise those prices to $629.95 and $1,079.95, essentially $630 and $1,080, because it was just tough with the price of components and the price of shielding, since they had had to comply with the FCC and all of that. We're talking about something that is less than half the price of an Atari 400, which is the basic version of the Atari, the limited version of the Atari home computer. And they're talking about putting out something that's less than half the cost of that. You know, it never gained much traction in Japan. It never did great in Japan. It's impossible to say for certain, especially since we don't have the internal sources from the Japanese companies to know what their strategic planning was. But it's definitely a fact that analysts and observers were expecting the Japanese to start introducing some of their computers, companies like NEC and Toshiba and Fujitsu, to start introducing their computers in the U.S. in 1981, and they didn't. They stayed out of the market, and there are analysts at the time, whether this is justified or not, gave Commodore's computer a lot of the credit for keeping them out of the market, because it's not so much that the Japanese couldn't compete with it, but it's more the Japanese, they take the long-term view, and they're very careful and they're very cautious when they're coming into a new market. It's not so much that the VIC scared them in terms of its capability and its price. It's more that it sent them back to the drawing board. Like, oh, if the Americans are doing this now, we need to go off and figure out our response to this. So that sets off like an 18-month cycle or whatever of refiguring out what your plans are. You know, it's a delaying action. It's not that it scared them away. It's that it made them go back to the drawing board somewhat literally. So the VIC-20 comes out as the VIC-1001 in 1980 in, in Japan and 1981 in the U.S. at this incredibly low price of $300. This drives the entire conversation in a new direction, that the conversation really had not been going before in the United States, because now it really was no longer about how can we get as close to the Apple II's functionality as possible? How can we bring business users into personal computing? That part of the market's not going away. I'm not saying that it suddenly kills that market. It's still there. But now we've got a whole different subset of the market, something completely different from what we've had before. And you get a stratification of the market into, into three segments now. You have the real high-end business computers. We're talking stuff that's in the like five to $10,000 range. A lot of this isn't even personal computers. Some of this is, is still mini computers and whatnot. Then you have what they're starting to differentiate as the personal computer terminology that some analysts were using at that time, which was kind of a $1,000 to $3,000 machine that was aimed at the small business user, something that had the power to do some useful things, especially if you just needed to do spreadsheets or something like that. Now you've got this kind of under $600 market, and this is when you really first start hearing about the home computer. So kind of this early home computer market is the VIC-20, the Atari 400, which is still kind of hanging around here. And one other computer that comes out in the same time as Tandy has the same idea of kind of blanketing the market and having their high-end Model 2 and kind of their mid-range TRS-80 Model 3, which is replacing the Model 1, and then also wants something that's in the low end of the market, primarily a response to Atari and Texas Instruments, though it ends up also being a response to the VIC just because it comes out at about the same time. And that's the Tandy TRS-80 color computer. 
That computer is also announced in 1980. The basic unit is announced at $400, so a little more expensive than the VIC-20. So this kind of becomes the first real home market. You've got the VIC-20 at the very low end at $300. You have the Tandy TRS-80 color computer at about $400. You have the Atari 400 at about $600. And then you have Texas Instruments pretending that they have a home computer for like $1,000, because why not? The TRS-80 color computer, we won't go into too much detail on it because it ends up really being a non-factor in the marketplace. The interesting thing about it is it's actually based on that Motorola processor, that 6809. The reason for that is they actually got into uh, business with Motorola because they were trying to bid for some government contracts for some low-cost computers. And Tandy didn't have a lot of experience bidding on contracts, so they partnered with Motorola to make this uh, agricultural computer because Motorola had the expertise on working with the government. And so that started a working relationship that caused them to keep it. You know, the TRS-80 was called the TRS-80 because it used a Z80 microprocessor. No Z80 in a Tandy color computer, but because the brand was so strong, they kept that name for the moment. So it was a bit of a misnomer. Interestingly, a little sidebar for our, our FCC guy, Dale here. Tandy was actually working on a, on a variety of computers as we talked about. And one thing they were working on is, is they realized in about 1979 that networking would be a big thing. They were kind of working on what was essentially their version of the French Minitel, which is this idea of basically having a simple networking computer that can dial into networks and and just does basic text and allows you to interface with early networking systems. This was still in the period of time before the FCC rules were changed. As they were working on this video text computer, they were having real problems with the FCC. And so what they actually did, which I'm not sure if it was for the video text computer or for the agricultural computer, was for one of those two that they were in the same time frame. What they actually did to get around it, because they had the savvy from Motorola, is they actually got themselves a transmitter's license for this computer, which allowed them to bypass the whole FCC approval thing entirely because they were a licensed transmitter. In 1981, you have really kind of this first true home computer market where you have the Atari 400, which is limited in some ways, but has the support of Atari and some of Atari's games and stuff behind it. The VIC-20, which is leading the way on price and is a pretty darn robust machine and is a very open platform. Commodore makes some deals directly with companies like Bally Midway and Adventure International, but then also they don't restrict other companies from getting on there as well. Then you have that TRS-80 color computer, which is really a Radio Shack system, you know, sold in their stores. The interesting thing about this home computer market is there is a lot of restriction on it. We haven't really talked about software and games very much, but a lot of what's inhibiting this part of the market as well is it happens that the computers that are in this part of the market are some of the most closed systems in existence, which is a bit unfortunate. Atari, really from the beginning, and this was being pushed a lot from the Warner end as well, Atari really wanted software control on their 8-bit computers. Now, they did not have a lockout chip. They did not have something that directly prevented other people from putting programs on the computer. But they did, in the beginning, not publish the specifications of the computer very widely. It was very hard for somebody to figure out how an Atari 8-bit computer actually worked so that they could make games for it. This changed in time once they realized this home computer market was developing and it was really unreasonable to expect to maintain complete control, but that was their stance in the beginning. 
Radio Shack computers were open systems. I mean, they were never really trying to discourage people, I don't think. But the thing about Tandy is that they made computers specifically for their own Radio Shack stores, about half of which were owned directly by Tandy, about half of which were franchised. Even though they didn't really care if other companies made software for the TRS-80, they were not going to stock software in their company-owned stores that they did not make themselves or that they did not have a specific license that they entered into with a company. TRS-80 users and TRS-80 color computer users had more options in some cases than the users of some other computers, but it was often harder to track down those options because stores that didn't carry Radio Shack computers didn't carry Radio Shack computer software, and stores that carried Radio Shack computers tended to be Radio Shacks that didn't carry anyone else's software. Some of the franchise stores were looser on that, but the direct-owned stores had a pretty strict policy. Commodore was far more accommodating. They also had a great bunch of games to show off from the very beginning, which wasn't necessarily true always of the other systems. I mean, Atari had its killer app and Star Raiders, but they didn't have a lot of games. The Commodore VIC-20 had a lot of games right out of the gate, not only because of their licenses with Adventure International and Valley Midway, but also because they had made, in Japan, they had created a relationship with a group of students that were going by the name of HAL Laboratory. Yes, that HAL Laboratory, the one that Satoru Iwata was part of. This group that became HAL Laboratories, they actually got their start. They were part of this group of college students, not an organized group, but part of this movement in Japan of college students that were very interested in computers that were very interested in computers, but didn't have the financial wherewithal to actually own their own computers. So they would actually go to the local department stores, which would have big computer displays with uh, computers that people could try out, and they would do programming experiments on these computers. These individuals went by the term Nikon, which was a pun because in Japan, a microcomputer was called a Micon. So Nikon was a way of saying these were the people with no computers. These were the Nikon or no computer people. And so it was a bit of a pun. Since Commodore did have a very active Japanese branch, the Japanese management there became friendly with some of these Nikon that had formed this group called HAL Laboratory, and they would actually come in and make games for Commodore. So they made these absolutely beautiful, flawless, I mean, as flawless as you could on the hardware. It's not like they're arcade perfect, but these beautiful, flawless adaptations of some of the top arcade games at the time. Many of these they could not sell in the United States, but some of them they got away selling elsewhere. And some of them, because Jack is very canny about this stuff, they would just sell them and set aside royalties. So they would sell them for as long as they could, knowing they would get sued, set aside what they figured a royalty payment would be for when they inevitably got sued, immediately settle and pay royalties when they got sued, and then stop selling the games. So they were able to sell some of these games these great arcade translations with the computer. So they had a really strong lineup, which is not something that a lot of the other home computers had. The Atari 400-800 could have really taken the lead of the computer game market, but it didn't because Atari was so secretive about the system. This is a big part of why the Apple II 
became the big game computer. I mean, yes, its bitmap screen made it better than the TRS-80 or the Commodore PET, but it wasn't necessarily that great a computer for games as compared to, say, the Atari 800. But because Apple was completely open about how the Apple II worked, that's where everyone gravitated towards with their software. That's kind of the situation that we find ourselves in in 1981. The other thing that Commodore does that really pushes them ahead of the competition, but also really pushes the state of the art of the market forward, is that now that they have this really cheap computer, they feel like the time is right to get into mass market retailers. I.e. the Kmart of the world and Sears. Well, specifically Kmart, actually, though they did get into other things as well. To back up a bit on this, Computers were a real specialty product. Computers were not something that the public was familiar with. Computers were not something that the public necessarily understood. And computers were something that had a lot of setup that went into them and a lot of poking at that you had to do before you could actually get it to do something. If you think computers are hard to set up now for yourself or your family, it was worse back then. Exactly. And this wasn't really something that people were going to use if they were intimidated by it or didn't have a good idea of what they were doing with it. Display models were absolutely critical. It turned out that the early video game industry discovered the display models of video games were absolutely essential too, and so companies like Fairchild and Atari, right from the very beginning of the programmable console market, were also doing displays in mass-market kind of retailers. But those kind of displays were real fire-and-forget displays. I mean, it's the same as if you've ever seen a console display in a store today. I mean, you can just set that up behind some glass and have a game running in a loop, and the public's going to figure it out, and they can try out the system before they buy. They might have a couple of questions for the sales clerk, but you don't need an attendant fully dedicated to that setup. Computers needed a fully dedicated setup where you had an incredibly knowledgeable employee that could walk you through every aspect of each computer and tell you the pros and cons, how it worked, all the specifications, etc. You needed a dedicated salesman for that, and that really meant specialty computer retailers for the most part. Not just because mass market retailers don't necessarily want to devote all that floor space to all of those computers, but also because the turnover is very high in retail. By the time you get an employee that's an expert on all the computer systems, he's left and done something else, and you have to train another employee all over again. Mass market retail is not really the place, except in a few highly specialized areas that they sell in. It's not really the place for a product that needs someone to walk you through it. It just doesn't work. Jack realized that in this environment, the VIC-20 was really going to be at a disadvantage, because these specialty computer stores make more money on the more expensive the product that they sell you. That's just logical. You're going to make more money on a more expensive product. I mean, I realize there's margins and this and that, and it's not a straight line, but as a general rule, you're going to make more money on the more expensive machines, especially if you can convince them to buy a few peripherals with it along the way, than you are on the cheaper machine. Specialty computer stores are naturally going to favor an Apple II or an Atari 800 over this VIC-20. Jack really felt that they had to get into mass market retailers. Now, there was a little bit of mass market by this point, but only a little bit. Atari had a very good relationship with Sears, dating all the way back to the launch of their first dedicated console, their home Pong unit in 1975. 
because they had this relationship and because Sears was a department store, which meant that they could have some more dedicated, highly trained staff in certain departments in a way that a a mass market retailer couldn't. Sears actually did stock the Atari 400 and 800 computers and put in that extra effort. That was an outlier. There really was not much else in mass market retail in terms of computers. So Jack decided that they would make a concerted effort to get Kmart on board with selling the VIC-20 because he knew that a mass market retailer that is only concerned about the margins and doesn't want to spend all the time explaining these different computers, they'll just stock the VIC-20. They won't care about selling a higher price computer. They'll just sell VIC-20s and everyone will be happy. They make a real push in the summer of 1981 to convince Kmart to take the computer. And Kmart's a little skeptical at first, because this is not the kind of thing that discount retailers take. But basically, Commodore ends up promising that they will give full-on support to all of the sales staff. They will go all around the country. They will train as many people as Kmart wants them to train to get Kmart ready to sell this computer. And that's what they do. They send out employees. They run training sessions. They get everyone ready. As, as one of the Commodore people says in Bagnall's book on Commodore, you know, all of those people were probably gone in six months and it didn't matter from a practical perspective. But from a business perspective, it was what convinced Kmart to take the computers. The big real change here is for the first time, we are getting these computers into mass market retailers. And they deal with some of the others as well. But Kmart was the one they made the deal with first. And Kmart was the most important one because at that time, it was Kmart, not Target or Walmart or any of these others, that was the big company on the block in in discount retailers. It was the Sears of discount retailers. Yes, I know how many layers that statement has with all of the Sears Kmart shenanigans that came much later. Here's a random tangent for you. When I was driving back home after flying out to California, I stopped at a gas station in the middle of Nevada where the inside looked like it came literally from a 1980s or 1990s Kmart. (laughs) It was surreal. Middle of nowhere. I guess when Kmart liquidated their stuff, this place bought some of it or something. I don't know. That's crazy. That's funny. This harkened a new era and was another thing that was really important to making the home computer market happen because the home computer was never truly going to penetrate just from computer stores and just from high-end department stores because those outlets that had dedicated trained staff explaining all the computers, they were always going to push people towards the high end. By getting into Kmart, it got this computer into the low end of the market. It legitimized the computer as a consumer product because it was in the ultimate of consumer locations which was Kmart, the discount store. Then, of course, they knew that they would have to have advertising to back this up that would really make a smash, because if you're going to go into mass market retailers, they are going to want ad guarantees. They're going to want guarantees that you're really marketing this product. The other thing that they did is they decided that they needed commercials, actual television commercials. They thought, what better way to market this than to go with the most high-tech of all spokespeople, the good folks, from the Star Trek franchise, because nothing screamed technology of the future quite like Star Trek and its technology of the 1960s. But that's beside the point. This was kind of still the premier science fiction show. So they looked at having William Shatner or Leonard Nimoy be their spokespeople for this computer, the VIC-20. It turned out that they didn't want to spend too much, and it turned out that the most readily available and cheapest of those options 
was not Mr. Science himself, Mr. Spock, but was actually William Shatner. Because it's hard to remember this today in a period where Shatner is so ubiquitous, but he actually had a really hard time after Star Trek. All the Star Trek people had some problems with typecasting and getting other roles after Star Trek. But it was particularly bad for Shatner. I mean, Nimoy got Mission Impossible right after Star Trek, and and he went on to do some things. Shatner was kind of out in the wilderness. It wasn't until Wrath of Khan, really, that Shatner came back to the forefront. And, you know, they decided to do Star Trek the motion picture as a response to Star Wars. There's a lot of other history about what they were trying to do, but the shortest version of it is that the motion picture got greenlit because of Star Wars. That got Shatner back in the public consciousness, and then they did Wrath of Khan, which was a massive hit, and he was also able to parlay the return of the Star Trek franchise into the title role in the television show T.J. Hooker. That brought Shatner back, but that was in 1982. In 1981, he was actually still at kind of the low ebb of his popularity and the low ebb of his marketability, and so he was actually quite cheap to get for these commercials. So they signed on William Shatner as the spokesperson. They actually filmed them during the filming of Wrath of Khan. I mean, that's how much this is overlapping. They literally got him right before his star was going to be ascendant again, because he was filming Wrath of Khan at the exact same time he was doing these commercials. Of course, they famously snuck a Commodore pet onto the set in, in his home. Shatner would often have Commodore stuff in the background from then on in Airplane. Airplane 2, I should say, because he was in Airplane Part 2. He uses a Commodore computer as well, his character. They bring Shatner on. The other thing that they decide is they're really going to go after the video game market with this. This is kind of the first time that the computer market shifts to actually trying to take a chunk out of the computer market because they run an ad campaign that is basically, why buy your child a video game system when you can buy them a computer where he can play great games and learn about computing? You see, it was kind of positioned as a learning computer because they knew this wasn't powerful. They knew it couldn't even be a small business or a personal productivity kind of computer, like an Atari 800 could maybe be, or an Apple II could maybe be. They knew that this would have two points to it, playing games and getting young people interested in computers and familiar with computers to give them an edge in the modern economy. So that's how they pitched it. They went directly after video games. They did this television advertising with Shatner. And they invaded mass market retailers for really the first time. This changed everything. It was definitely not lost on the good people over at the company that prided itself as being Mr. Consumer Electronics, Texas Instruments. (laughs) Now that we've set up Commodore and where Commodore is going into the 1981 holiday season, it's time to take another step back and look at what's really going to be their main competition here. Atari's kind of hanging out there, but they're not that big a deal. Radio Shack with the color computer really never has a chance. But Texas Instruments is still out there. They're still selling a computer, the TI-99, at their exorbitant price of $1,150. And they still see themselves as a home computer company in the same vein as a Tandy or a Commodore, despite the fact that their computer is available for an absolutely ridiculous price compared to that competition. TI, once they had their failure with the TI-99-4, could have just thrown in the towel and gone all the way back to the drawing board and tried again. But that's not TI. 
TI is a very sophisticated company of very brilliant engineers that produced the most brilliant cutting-edge technology. There was no way they were going to fail. So, in 1980 or so, they started tinkering with the machine. Tinkering? Yes. At first, they were looking at replacing the 9900 microprocessor entirely, because it was very clear they had to get the price down. There was a big push within engineering to replace the 9900 with a Z80 microprocessor. Because that was the 8-bit microprocessor that everybody loved that wasn't standing for the 6502, and I guess there were one or two Motorola people out there in the back someplace. This was, you know, one of the gold standards in 8-bit processors. This is the one everybody liked, and this is the processor that the engineers wanted to put into the machine. Wonder of wonders, even in a company that has a very, very big NIH complex, not invented here complex, the managers of the computer division thought that this was the right move because they were seeing, they saw this new wave of computers coming, this Tandy color computer, this VIC-20. They saw it was coming and they knew it was untenable. The logical thing to do was to get rid of the processor because nobody in the consumer market cared about 16-bit processors. IBM was about ready to do the PC with a 16-bit processor, but that was a business machine. There was no home machine that was trying to do a 16-bit processor. So they were fine with it. TI didn't have an 8-bit processor, so sure, use the Z80. Unfortunately, it wasn't just up to the people in the computer division. Because there was an engineer in consumer electronics that had to approve everything that would get made by the name of Don Bynum. Don Bynum was a young guy, 36 years old which was really unusual for someone in his position of power at TI. Because, like I said, TI, very much like IBM, this is one of those companies where you came in as a graduate, you worked your way through the company, you rose up the ranks, you retired with your gold watch. The engineers that were in charge of things, that had actual decision-making capability, tended to be older. The fact that Bynum, at 36, had this position of power within the organization just goes to show what a hotshot he was, not just as an engineer, but also as a manager and as a leader of men. Bynum worked for the Corporate Engineering Center at TI headquarters in Dallas. The Consumer Electronics Division was in Lubbock, but uh, headquarters was in Dallas, which is the place where all R&D projects throughout the entire company had to go before they would receive final approval. Bynum had to give his approval for the Z80 computer, and he said, no, this is not the time to dispense with the 9900. This is an amazing processor, and it is a Texas Instruments processor. We put our blood, sweat, and tears into this machine, into this processor, so that we would leapfrog the competition and prove once again that Texas Instruments is the superior company in consumer electronics. This is not the time to abandon the 9900. This is the time to double down on the 9900. It's the design of the computer that's the problem, not the processor. We are Texas Instruments. We can design ourselves out of any problem because we are the best and the brightest. You know, I really want to take all that and just put it in Southern Baptist preacher mode. Yeah, pretty much. He put his money where his mouth was. I mean, because this isn't some clueless suit that's saying, well, company policy is we use TI stuff, so 
we got to use TI stuff. This was an engineer and a talented one at that. So he put his money where his mouth was, and he took it upon himself to redesign the 99.4 into a product codenamed Ranger. His initial design was still expensive. This was not the end of the line in redesigning the computer. But the point is, he was showing that we can stick with the 9900 and we can fix some of these problems and we can move forward on that basis. As a result, Peter Bonfield, the head of the uh, computer project, was shipped off to calculators. And in November 1980, Mr. Bynum moved to Lubbock and took charge of the redesign of the TI-99 for computer. So once Bynum came in, they did a comprehensive redesign. And by the summer of 1981, they had a new prototype, the 99.4A, with a wholesale price of only $340 that could be sold on to consumers for $550. This was a huge breakthrough because, I mean, yeah, the VIC-20 is cheaper, obviously, by quite a bit here. But the VIC-20 is also a less capable computer. Now we're talking about a 16-bit computer with excellent sprite capability in the form of the TI-99-4A that has breached the $600 barrier, which ends up, quite frankly, being the psychological barrier. Like, when they start talking about the home computer market, they call it the under-600 market. I don't know why specifically $600 was that psychological barrier, but the barriers were kind of $600 and 1000 Breaching that $600 barrier was a major psychological victory. So now you had a computer that was fancier, more in line with, say, an Atari 800 than with a VIC-20, except was now available for $550. By this time, 1981, Atari had finally cut the price of the 400 for the first time. They had cut the price down to 500. They had also breached that $600 barrier for the first time in 1981, but they were unable to lower the price of the 800. The 800 was still up there at $1,000. So they were basically the same price as an Atari 400 computer, but it was a much more capable computer than the 400 computer. And yes, they were a little bit higher in price than a VIC 20, but they were much, much more capable than a VIC 20. So this really set the battle lines. This is where we are finally kind of getting to the starting line of where this true competition is going to be, this slugfest primarily between Commodore and Texas Instruments, with Atari kind of also hanging around and then Tandy being like, what do we care? We have our own stores. We have our own dedicated customer base. If we don't beat the rest of you, we'll still sell enough computers to make our margins. So go have your fun. We'll just be Tandy like we always are. So now they had a computer. Now they just needed somebody to sell that computer. And the individual brought in for that task was another young gentleman by the name of Bill Turner. Bill Turner was another odd duck, just like Bynum. This is a really unusual thing that's going on in the computer division with the company. He is not a TI career man at all. He came from Digital Equipment Corporation. He came from the mini-computer business. He joined the company, joined TI in May 1980, as marketing manager for the Consumer Products Group. He wasn't an engineer. He had no technical know-how whatsoever. For the first time, there was going to be an actual marketer that was going to be dealing with the computers. 
obviously TI wanted to sell computers, but they didn't really have a sales kind of mentality. The kinds of executives that were successful at TI weren't really in that kind of mold. This was a marketer coming in, a sales and marketing guru. In some ways, he was a lot more like Jack, quite frankly. He understood some of the same problems that Jack Trammell understood when it came to computers. First of all, he knew that computer stores were not going to be the answer. So he started an aggressive push to get the TI computer into mass market retailers, discount stores, toy stores, department stores, all of these places. He also believed that a home computer, even one more adept like the TI-99-4A, was never going to be taken seriously at a mid-range price point, even at a $550 price point. Because if you really needed a computer, there were more capable computers out there, like the forthcoming IBM PC, like everyone chasing the Apple II, like many computers for that matter. Even though home computers are starting to be classified as this kind of 600 and under crowd, something just kind of hanging around that $600 mark was going to be seen as not useful or powerful enough to be worth paying a lot of money for, but too expensive to be something you just fool around with. Turner felt that a home computer was really a toy, similar to how Commodore was treating the VIC-20 as a toy. So he believed that they were going to have to continue bringing down the price of this machine. He didn't think being a little more expensive than the VIC-20, but being far more capable than the VIC-20 was going to be enough. They needed to start closing some of that gap. They also, of course, needed advertising because they were going to try to push into the mass market, while Commodore went with the kind of let's get somebody from the future mentality. Texas Instruments decided, let's go with the most trusted dad in America. Their own Bill, Bill Cosby. Maybe not aging well in this uh, present climate, but we do have to remember that at that time, in all seriousness, he was considered one of the most trusted celebrities in all of showbiz. Bill Cosby speaking to you about something provided instant credibility. If Bill Cosby was saying that you and your children should have something... Then you sat up and listened. So now the battle lines are drawn. We have the super cheap VIC-20, the redesigned TI-99-4A. Other computers are on the horizon. We'll get to those. But the battle lines are drawn for a truly epic price war. And in part three, we will finally turn our attention to that epic battle and the consequences and fallout thereof. Thus, kids... With that lead up, we have electronics in the streets beating each other down in order to assert who is the cheapest. The war shall commence next time on They Create Worlds, The Computer Price Wars, Part 3. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at 
patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Apple, iTunes, that other thing down the street. We don't really care. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.